Good morning, South Shores. I hope you're doing well this morning. I'm excited to dive into God's Word, and I'm also excited that uh, Tandy prayed for me, and I just want to remind you all that in his prayer, he said, Dana is a product of our church. So if this sermon is terrible, it's your fault. <laughs> now that that's said, uh, if you uh, have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, um, let's see here. Mike Perez is ready to pass some Bibles out to you. The Bible's right behind you, Mike Perez. Um, how'd you like that for some delegation? Uh, you can just raise your hand and he will get you a Bible. We're going to be in 1 John in God's Word because when people stand up at the pulpit of South Shores Church, they don't offer their opinions. They don't offer their greatest ideas. They offer God's Word. And we would have it no other way. Amen? Amen. Amen. To prepare us for our passage this morning, I'd love to ask you a question. Have you ever considered or thought deeply about how deeply you've been changed by relationships with other people? Have you thought about how deeply relationships with other people have marked you in permanent ways? When I think from my own life, I think of uh, in high school, the powerful lesson of uh, leading first by example and second by word was impressed upon me by my wrestling coaches when I was in uh, high school at San Clemente. When I think about relationships that have changed me, I think about my grandparents sitting back there who showed me that whether you're 80 or 18, Jesus is just as faithful. I think about my old youth pastor, Dave Keene, who taught me the Bible, trained me for ministry, and even to this day continues to encourage me to love my family, to love my church, and to love the lost. Uh, and thinking about people who've changed me, I think about my wife, how she's a constant proof to me of God's love in God's power, that he would convince her somehow to say yes to marrying me. Right? Miracles continue to happen, amen? Uh, but in all reality, she has so affected me and changed me over the past 13 years that I barely know where Shauna ends and I begin. Relationships change us in permanent ways, and I think you could all have lists of your own. You can mark out people who've changed you in permanent ways, and this is what I'd love for us to think next is, if this is true of people, how much more true is it that having a relationship with God will change us? If people can make such permanent and lasting change in the deepest parts of our being, how much more true is it that a restored relationship with God through Christ will radically transform us? This is true for multiple reasons. The scriptures tell us it's true because of what God does for us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God says that he has forgiven our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He adopts us into his very own family. That'll change a person when that happens to them. But even further, God doesn't just do things for us. He does things to us. You see, becoming a Christian means that you are going from being dead in your sin to alive in Christ. You're going from having a heart that, that principally rebels against God to having a heart that now yearns to obey and love him. That will change a person. But even more, having a relationship with God will change you because of simply who God is. You see, the truth about God truly received isn't just facts in our heads, but it transforms our heart. Nobody can behold the face of God, the truth of who he is in his word, and remain un. 
changed if they have a true relationship with him. And John knows that. That's why he opens up our passage this morning by giving us a brilliant truth statement about who God is. Look what he says in verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. If you remember Pastor Ty's sermon last week as he opened up uh, 1 John for us at our Easter celebration, he reminded us that John is an eyewitness of Jesus. John walked with Jesus. John knows what the tenor of Jesus' voice sounds like. He knows what a hug from Jesus feels like. You see, the Bible is not written just by people who heard a great story. The Bible is written by people who saw a great Savior. And so he's saying, this is the message we have heard from him. This is the message that I've heard from Jesus and proclaimed to you. What's the message? He goes on. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John loves symbolism and metaphors, and the symbolism of light and darkness is one of his favorites. You can read about it in his gospel or in his letters, but the idea of light and darkness shows up time and time again, and it symbolizes this. Light symbolizes truth and righteousness. Right thinking and right uh, living. And on the contrary side, darkness represents falsehood and evil, which makes perfect sense because when you're in the dark, you cannot see the things that are around you. The truth of your surroundings is, is blinded to you, so you can't see the truth. But additionally, when you're, in, when you're in the dark, people can't see you. So every single one of us knows that when you're in the dark, it's a little easier to do things that you would never be seen doing in the light. And so when John has us think about God, he says this, God is light, in him is no darkness. In the being of God, there is not a hint of falsehood, which in a day of fake news, how refreshing is that? But not only is God without falsehood, he is without evil. That we know that if we were to search the deepest parts of the being of God, we would find not a hint not an ounce, not a fragrance of sin. Perfectly good all the way down to the core of his being. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So can we all agree that having a relationship with this God who does these things for us and to us and who is this light, can we agree that having a relationship with him will change a person? But we have to ask a further question. When someone does trust in Jesus Christ and they have a restored relationship with God, what does that change look like? We can all agree that change happens, but what does that change look like? You see, some people, when they think about that question, what does it look like when someone's changed by a relationship with God, they may think negative things. Uh, there's a movie out right now called The Case for Christ, which is a movie based on a book called The Case for Christ. And it is uh, written, the book was written by a former Chicago Tribune journalist and atheist. And it's his investigation using his journalistic skills to investigate the truthfulness of Christianity. And the thing that prompted his entire investigation about Christianity was his wife becoming a believer. 
And when she became a believer in an interview, this is what he said his mind started thinking of. He said this, I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie. And now that she became a Christian, I feared that she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upward mobility for all our upward mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. You see, for Lee Strobel, the idea of his wife becoming a Christian terrified him because he thought that God would change her in negative ways. Other people think that God changes people in superficial ways. They think that becoming a Christian means you just simply you pray before meals, you go to church on most Sundays, definitely Easter and Christmas, Right? You don't cuss too often, or especially in front of children, uh, and you put a fish sticker on the back of your car, right? And if you got those things, you know, kind of checked off the list, then you're a Christian, all superficial kinds of things. Other people think that becoming a Christian changes you. It doesn't really have to change you. In fact, changing is really unnecessary. There's a version of Christianity that's out there that says that you can have a true relationship with God, yet remain completely unchanged. That if you come forward at a, a crusade or you write your name in the Bible or you say a certain prayer, that you will be saved, you have a relationship with God, but it doesn't necessarily have to affect the way that you live your life. And so with all of these ideas about what this change looks like, here's the question I want to ask this morning as we dive into God's word. How does God change us? And we can't just be content to listen to what others say. We can't just be content to make up our own best ideas or guesses. What we need to do to answer our question is look into God's word and hear from Jesus himself. How does the God of light change those who have a relationship with him? How does God change his people? And so hopefully you're in 1 John chapter, five, or chapter 1, verse 6 is where John is going to show us what this change looks like, and he's going to give us three inevitable ways that God changes those who trust in Jesus. That if you trust in Christ, these three things will be changed in your life. And so first, let's read in verse 6, as John introduces us to a unique character that we need to be aware of. Verse 6, he says this, If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And before I share the three ways that God changes us, we need to take a small excursus at this point and talk about the character that John is referring to in this passage. Namely, he says there is a type of person that's out there that claims to have fellowship with God. They claim to be a Christian, yet they do not live like Christians that their claim isn't matched by their conduct. And John says that this person is a liar, that their claim to be a Christian is untrue. And this introduces us to a category of people the Bible teaches us about called a false believer, a counterfeit Christian, a spiritual fraud. Now, as I say that, it may shock some of you, but it really shouldn't because we live in a world filled with frauds, do we not? Uh, Bernie Madoff 
is a famous name because he, he uh, postured himself as a legitimate businessman only to successfully, until he got arrested, um, until he got caught, take steal $65 billion from other people in the greatest Ponzi scheme that our nation has ever seen. I had a man after last service came up to me and said, Pastor Dane, that was a great sermon. I have one correction, which is always fun after you get done preaching. You're like, I thank you. Tell me the things I did wrong. And he says, here's a, Bernie Madoff's not the biggest Ponzi scheme in the world. Social security is. And <laughs> so take that for what you will. I thought it was funny. But he, Bernie Madoff, he was a fraud. Some of you know that when people call you saying that they're your insurance company or they're your, your, your mortgage company and they're asking for vital information over the phone, that not always who they say they are is who they actually are. We get fraudulent phone calls. We get fraudulent emails, right? Not everybody who emails you telling you that he's the prince of Nigeria is actually the prince of Nigeria, <laughs> right? It could be a fraud, just maybe. You see, we live in a world where people claim to be things that they're not, and the Bible says the same is true in the church, that there are people who sit in pews on Sunday who claim to be Christians, yet they really aren't. Jesus teaches about this when he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Notice that picture, a wolf on the inside, but a sheep on the outside. The outside reality is not matching the inward reality. It's a disguise. Second is James teaches us this. James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James knows there's a type of faith that is in the world that says you can believe in Jesus yet remain unaffected in your life. And James says, no, 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 no. That is not true saving Christian faith. That is false, dead faith. Fake faith, not real faith. Paul teaches this. Paul, the one who speaks about the grace of God through Jesus in such powerful ways, in 2 Corinthians, when he's talking about the dangers he faced in his ministry, lists off a couple doozies for us. He says this, I've been in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and what last? Danger from false brothers. And I think most powerfully of all, Jesus illustrates it in a, in a parable or in a, in a story, in a teaching that is probably tattooed on the hearts of everyone who's ever read it, where he says these words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. Notice this. These are people who both call Jesus Lord and are active in some form of Christian ministry. And Jesus looks at them and, and says this, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, there is such thing as false believers False believers who fake out other believers and even in some senses false believers that even deceive themselves. To say it simply, the spirit of Judas is still alive and well today. People who on the outside don't have an inner reality that matches. Why does God tell us about these false Christians? 
Why does God warn us of false believers? Is it so that we can kind of come to church every Sunday morning with our clipboard, with a furrow brow, judging everybody critically to see if their Christianity measures up to the real deal? Is that what, that would be a terrible church to be a part of, right? Your clipboard's at the door, right? And maybe just judge carefully. Here we go. No, that's not what the church is about. Is it so God can make us afraid of those that we're sitting next to? Maybe even right now you're like, well, I thought you were a Christian, but who knows? I've always had a hunch about you. Yeah. Or is God tell us about this so that we're constantly walking around in anxiety asking the question, am I a true believer? Does God want to kind of always keep our assurance teetering so that we live faithfully just in case? No, none of those are why God tells us this. God tells us about the reality of false believers so that we can love. Love who? Number one, he tells us of false believers so that we can love ourselves. Do any of you want to be that person on that day that says, Lord, Lord, and then have Jesus respond to you, depart from me, I never knew you? None of us wants to be that person. God tells us about that reality to warn us so we would do this. Examine our faith in light of God's word to make sure that it's genuine. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul commands Christians, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. In fact, the purpose of 1 John, one of the greatest purposes is this, to assure Christians of their salvation. Because God doesn't want you to walk around in anxiety, wondering if you're his child. He wants you to be sure. In fact, you can write this down for later purposes. 1 John 5.13, John states his purpose of his letter. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That's his purpose. Christian, God is looking you in the eye saying, I want you to not guess that you have eternal life. I don't want you to just bet that you have eternal life. I want you to what? Know you have eternal life. So God tells us about false believers so that we can love ourselves, examine our faith in light of God's word so we can know. Secondly, he tells us about false believers so that we can love the church. So we can love the church. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who will come into your churches teaching you doctrines that will lead you away from heaven and toward hell. And how is the church to detect and protect themselves from these false believers? By God's word, helping us to know how to identify those who are truly of Christ and those who are not. We protect our families and our churches by being informed by the reality of false believers. And lastly, God tells us about false believers so that we may love the lost, so that we may love the lost. Do you know there are a lot of lost people that live today that think they're not lost? There are a lot of people today that think they are Christians, but once you actually examine the, the reality of their Christianity, you find that the Christianity that they have is very different than the kind described in the Bible. And God equips us with this truth so that we would be able to love the lost, especially the lost who think they're found. My little brother, for his entire life, thought he was a Christian. Even though throughout high school, he, he lived in violence and in sexual morality and in lies and cheating and all these things. That just described his life. But yet he still thought he was a Christian because one time, sometime in the past, he made Jesus his Savior. 
And so I understood that if my brother is ever going to be reached with the gospel of Jesus, he needs to be de-evangelized before he is properly evangelized. He needs to understand that he is not a Christian, so then he would actually be prepared to become a true Christian. He needed to know that what he held in his heart was counterfeit, so that he would receive from Christ what is genuine. Sometimes the only way people can become Christians is to first be told that they're not Christians in the first place. And so we need to love the lost. We are told this to love the lost. And so with all of this background, our excursus is now over, right? John says there's people who claim to have fellowship with God, yet they walk in the darkness. So the question we have to ask again is, okay, John, how can we tell the difference? How can we identify those who are lying to themselves and have this counterfeit Christianity? And John brings us back to our question this morning. He says this, you can know by simply knowing how God changes those who trust him. If you know how God changes those who trust him, you will then be able to detect true Christianity from false Christianity. So we come back to our question. How does God change believers? And John offers us three simple ways in our passage this morning, and the first is this. God changes our living God changes our living. And, Paul, or, and John talks about this in verse 6 and 7. Look at what he says in verse 6. He says, If we say, now just note for structural purposes, this, this phrase, if we say, is repeated in this passage. Look at verse 6. If we say, then look down in verse 8. What do you see again? If we say, and then lastly in verse 10, if we say, and so John is going to hit three different ways God changes us, and he opens each of them with this claim, if we say. But the first thing he talks about is this counterfeit Christianity that doesn't match up with how God changes us. So he says, if we say, verse 6, we have fellowship with him. While we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. In other words, John is saying this. If you say that you're friends with God, yet you are always living in the neighborhood of sin, you're lying. Because God is light, and in him is no darkness. You cannot have friendship with God and live in the darkness. You cannot follow the Savior from sin and still live happily in your sin. True Christianity doesn't say, I follow Jesus and I steal too. True Christianity does not say, I follow Jesus and I cheat on my taxes, too. It doesn't say, I follow Jesus and abuse my family, too. I follow Jesus and commit sexual immorality, too. John here is saying, if you claim to be a Christian, if your claim to be a Christian is not matched by your conduct, if, your, if Jesus is in your mouth but not in your hands, if your talk is not matched by your walk, if you are living in the darkness, but you say you have fellowship with the God who is light, then John leans into you this morning, lovingly looks you in the eye, and he says this, you're lying. You're lying, and the truth is not in you. How can he say that? Because he knows that those who have a true relationship with God through Jesus 
will have changed lives. Some of you may be thinking, but how, how can John say that? That's so judgmental. That's so not politically correct, John. What is your deal? How could you say that my Christianity is counterfeit? How can you say that just because I walk in the darkness, I don't have friendship with God? Maybe God and I have our own thing going on, John. Who are you to judge me and say that I am lying? And John's response is this, I'm no one. But Jesus is kind of a big deal. And Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You see, if we claim to follow Jesus, yet walk in darkness, what we're really claiming is Jesus is leading us into darkness. And that will never happen. But even further, if we claim to have fellowship with the God who is light, but we walk in the darkness, we simply reveal that we haven't been transformed by the grace of God because Jesus himself, the light of the world, says this, you are the salt of the earth and you are the what? Light of the world. Through faith in Jesus, we become the light of the world. How can the light of the world live in habitual darkness? see, now John goes from this kind of more dreary, sobering reality, walking in the darkness, but now he gives us the gospel truth that's on the other side of the coin. He says this in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, that is if we walk according to the truth of God's word and according to the commands of God's word, if we walk in the light, at home, at school, at church, in public, in private, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship not only with God, but with one another, the church. And even further, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. You see, those who know Jesus as the light of the world you can't get them to habitually live in the darkness because they love the warmth of the light. They love the warmth of the light. When someone becomes a Christian, they realize that what they used to chase after took their joy away. But the one who chased after them has come to bring their joy back. You see, those who've been saved from the cold of the dark love the warmth of the light. Those who've been saved from the deceit of the darkness love the truth of the light. Those who have been saved from the evil rebellion of the darkness love the joy of the light. Christians walk in the light because they love the light of the world and they love the warmth of his light. And so Christians don't go about their relationships like the world goes about their relationships because the world's in darkness, but they want to live their relationships out in the light. They don't go about school like the dark world goes about school, but they go about school in the way Christ calls them to go about it, in the light. They don't treat their spouses like the world treats their spouses, but they look at the light of God's word and they said, that's how I want to treat my spouse. They go to work either as bosses or employees not imitating the world in its darkness, but imitating Christ in his light, 
Here's the question that I want to ask you before we move to the second way God changes us. Are you, this morning, walking in the light? Are you walking in the light? Is your life characterized by living according to God's truth and in obedience to God's commandments? Or is it characterized by falsehood and disobedience? Are you walking in the light? And if so, John wants to encourage you, reminding you that if you walk in the light, then you have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son, Jesus, what? Cleanses us from all sin. I love that John doesn't say forgives us, but he says cleanses. We're forgiven of our sin through Jesus, amen? But God gives us something even more. He doesn't just forgive the penalty of our sin, but he erases the stain of our sin as well. Here's the second way that God changes us, and it may answer the question some of you may be asking, does this mean that being a Christian just means you're sinlessly perfect? You're just always walking in the light and never sinning at all? Not a chance. And that's why John says this in the next verse. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The second way that God changes us is he changes our confessing. He changes our confessing. John says if we claim that we have no sins, if we deny our sins, what he says is that we deceive ourselves, which I love that he says that. I don't know if you have people in, their, in your life that just fail to recognize the ways that they fall short, right? And they're usually the only one that's blind to the ways that they fall short, right? If you ask their spouses, their kids, their friends, their neighbors, they could give you quite the list to the contrary, right, that they may say about themselves. And so John says, if you say you're without sin, you're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. And we do this in different ways. Sometimes we deny sin by hiding sin. We erase our internet histories. We hide our spending records. We hide our text messages and our daily activities. Some people deny their sins by simply renaming them giving them a new name. And so I'm no longer lazy, but I am motivationally dispossessed. <laughs> it's creative. Or I'm not a shoplifter, but a cost of living adjustment specialist. <laughs> or I'm not a liar, but I'm a distributor of alternative facts. Right? And some people blame shift their sins. I'm like this, not because of anything wrong in me, but my parents really screwed me up. It's their fault. Or I'm sorry that I said those terribly mean things, but you made me. Or I'm sorry I have a hot temper. I just have Latin blood inside of me. Right? Whether we blame our ethnicity or our spouses or our upbringing, oftentimes so many people today take the blame off themselves and put it onto other people and they deny their sins in the process. And we do this because we want to lift the weight and seriousness of our sins off our shoulders. No one likes to feel the weight and the guilt of their sins. At least I don't. I hope you are the same way. Right? And so what we like to do is we try and hide it or justify it or rationalize it or lessen it. But this is a crucially dangerous thing. Why? Because how we view our sin will directly affect how we view our Savior. If you think your sins are just these little, these little peccadillos, just these tiny little eensy-weensy little things, then your view of Jesus will be tiny as well. If you, have, if you have a small view of sin, you will have a small view of the Savior. 
Christians who know what true joy is, Christians who know what their salvation truly means, they are not people who diminish their sin. In fact, they probably make much of their sin because they know this, that as deep as my sin goes, Christ goes deeper still. That if my sin is a mountain, then Christ is an ocean that covers that mountain, never to be seen again. And so Christians do not deny their sins, but what do they do? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, this is a key note. Listen, sometimes people think that becoming a Christian means you will be sinlessly perfect. False. John actually says, if you say you're without sins, that's evidence you probably aren't a Christian. And so Christianity is not marked by sinless perfection, but what is it marked by? Repentance. Christians are people that when they sin, they repent of their sin. You see, Christians are not completely free of sin. We've been freed from its penalty. We've been freed from its power, but its presence still lives within us. But Christians will always characteristically flee from sin. They won't hide it. They won't lessen it. They will confess it. It's kind of like a cat with water. Cats. The Bible has a special name for cats. Uh, demons. <laughs> if you were at a pool one day and you saw me just kind of nudge a cat into the pool, what would you expect that cat to do? Everything it can to get out. Because cats hate water, right? It's in their nature. Because they're unclean beasts, and so they don't want to be made clean. That's what happens. <laughs> I've just made like half the room are my friends and half are my enemies now because of that. Um, <laughs> but just as cats naturally hate water and will do anything they can to get out of it when they're found in it, so Christians, when they fall into sin, will be known by doing everything they can to get out. A Christian's relationship with sin is like a cat's relationship with water. They may fall into it from time to time, but what God does in their hearts is he makes them not swim around in it, but get out of it. Own it, confess it, repent of it, and then again, as John says, find in Jesus the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing from all unrighteousness. God changes our living, God changes our confessing, and God changes, lastly, our admitting. He changes our admitting. Look what John says in the last verse, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned. So this goes beyond just saying I don't have sins in my life right now to I have not sinned in the first place. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Why is it we make him a liar? Because the good news of Jesus Christ assumes what? The bad news of our sin. Before God tells anybody about the forgiveness he offers in Jesus, he first tells them about the sin and the punishment that they deserve, the sin they have and the punishment they deserve. And so what John is saying is that if someone comes to the gospel and says, no, 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 wait, wait, hold the show. I haven't sinned. What they're effectually doing is this. God, you're a liar. I'm not the sinful person that you say I am. I'm a good person. I just do bad things. And John says, if you do not admit that sin, if you say you have not sinned, 
then you're like a person with terminal cancer that thinks they're healthy. You can believe it all you want, but it will keep you away from the very people that can actually help you. If you do not embrace the bad news of your sin, you will never rejoice in the good news of your Savior. And this is something that we need to understand because a lot of people think that Christians are people who think they deserve to go to heaven. The exact opposite is true. Christianity is a religion for sinners. Heaven will only be filled with people who know they don't deserve to be there, but they know the one who's accomplished the work to get them there. That's why Charles Spurgeon says, there is nothing that prevents a man from coming to Christ as a good opinion of himself. If you think you're okay, you'll never seek the cure. And so this morning... Has your living been changed? Has your confessing been changed? Has your admitting been changed? Say I came late to church this morning. Say I came in and I rushed to the pulpit and I put my things down and I was sweaty, my tie was undone, my hair was out of place and I said, I'm so sorry that I'm late but on my way to work or on my way to church this morning I got hit by a semi-truck. Let's begin. Uh, you probably wouldn't buy that. And I said, well, yeah, I was, I was getting in my car and all of a sudden a semi-truck was coming down PCH at 75 miles an hour and I was crossing the street and it hit me and I, and I flew like 100 yards and, you know, so that's why I'm late. You would never believe me for this reason. You know that if I were to come into contact with something as big and powerful as a semi-truck, I would have some evidences to show of it. Fair enough? That if I had contact with a semi-truck, I would have marks to show it because I cannot remain unchanged if I'm hit by a semi-truck going 75 miles an hour. In our passage this morning, John is being a friend and pastor to our souls. He's leaning in and he's saying this, is God bigger than a semi-truck? How can it be that we, have a, we can say that we have a relationship with God yet remain unchanged? And John says, it can't be. So this morning, if you find yourself maybe thinking, I, I'm not walking in the light, I'm not confessing sins, I haven't admitted my guilt, then I have bad news for you this morning. You are most definitely not a Christian. But immediately I hasten to add, I have good news for you this morning. You can become one. Jesus stands with his arms open. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. If you turn away from your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God promises that he will forgive your sins, cleanse you, give you a new heart, adopt you into his family, and secure you forevermore. If only you step out of the darkness and walk in the light. I hope you take that invitation this morning. If you want to talk with me further about it, I'll be in the back to talk with you after service. But let me end in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much. For this morning, thank you so much for my friends and my family in here. And I pray, Lord, that this morning you would show us how mighty and powerful you are. That you would show us that having a relationship with you will absolutely, radically transform us. And for those in here who can see the evidences of your transforming grace in their life, I pray that you would give them a deep assurance and joy to know that their sins have been forgiven and they are your children. But Lord, for those in here who have been confronted by your word this morning, convicted of sin, I pray that you would bring them out of the darkness so they too may walk in the light of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and we love your light. Help us to walk in it every day.
Amen.